Harvard Divinity School. Religious Literacy and Climate Justice, April 14th, 2023. So it's great to start off the morning with all of you. I'm Susie Hayward. I'm the Associate Director for Religious Literacy in the Professions in the Religion and Public Life Office, and we have been one of the many offices at HDS that has been supporting this student-led um, Climate Justice Week uh, events and conversation. We were very pleased to do so and very thankful to the students led by Ana del Castillo, um, but with Amira, Maya, and John, um, who are here in spirit right now, but I think still running from class. Um, to be able to support these incredible events and conversations that have been happening. So this morning's panel is going to focus on a particular question. What does the critical study of religion have to offer in thinking about developing scientific and policy responses to climate that are just and holistic and inclusive? We have four wonderful people, four of my favorite people who are here to break open that question for us. Um, each of these folks is one of our fellows in religion and public life, and they work with students in our Certificate in Religion and Public Life program, helping them think through what religious literacy means for work with across different professional fields and addressing particular justice issues. So I'm gonna take a moment to introduce all of them before I hand it over to Sarah Ben to lead us forward. First, um, in the middle here is Cynthia Wilson, who is our Religion and Public Life Program uh, Fellow on Indigenous and Native Rights. Sin is a tribal member of the Navajo Nation who's pursuing her PhD at UC Berkeley studying Native food sovereignty. And she was a critical organizer in the efforts to protect and establish Bears Ears National Monument. Next on the far end is the Reverend Naomi Washington Lepard, a UCC pastor who currently serves as Director for Faith-Based and Interfaith Affairs for the City of Philadelphia and serves on the Interfa Interfaith Advisory Team to the Department of Homeland Security. And then here we have Teresa Cavazos-Cohn, um, who is Associate Professor of Natural Resources and the Environment at UNH Durham and is co-founder of the Confluence Lab, which brings together scholars in science, arts, and the humanities to address environmental issues in an interdisciplinary approach, especially as they impact rural communities. And then finally, our moderator for today is Sarabin Levy-Brightman, who's a former high school humanities teacher, including just down the road at the Cambridge Ridge and Latin School, with a particular interest in critical and creative pedagogy, and more recently, questions of time, which she is going to bring to her role as moderator today. So, Sarabin, I'll hand it over to you. Take it away. Well, that was timely because I didn't know that's what I was doing. <laughs> no. Um, first of all, thank you uh, for being here today, and I want to extend a real thanks to the students um, at HDS. This is an event that was conceived of um, by them and in this week created, conceived of, and driven by them. So it's really an honor um, for all of us to be up here today to think together and to think with you all a little bit. Um, and I think that you know, when students gather to create in this community, 
really wonderful things happen, and it is a gift to be part of that um, in this week. Um, today, we're going to move very sort of simply down the line. Teresa's going to open up by talking about um, some of the science and some of what she's thinking about um, with respect to the science, um, given her um, experience working in interdisciplinary um, ways and particularly over the past two years, increasingly thinking about um, the place of religion. Teresa is a scientist. Each of these people here, as is probably quite evident, are not um, religious scholars, although Naomi comes closest, um, but really are living now at the intersection of their work out in the world and then questions that they are tangling with as they're working at HDS and working with students at HDS. Um, so Teresa's going to begin and um, then Sin will speak and then Naomi. I may jump in after each of them with a question or two if that feels, if the spirit so moves. And then afterwards we will open up for conversation among the three of them um, given what they are speaking um, about to you and to each other. And following that, we'll open up for questions and conversation with the whole room. So, Teresa. Thank you. Is this on? You can hear me okay? Good. Um, I just wanted to start with my own thanks to the students this week and for this uh, abundance of conversation with the fellows uh, and, um, and with presentations this week. I'm feeling full and humbled and um, grateful. Yeah, to all of the work that, that everyone's put in for this. And I'm also thinking a lot about story, which I think is a theme among the fellows and also among uh, people who've talked over the past few days and I know is of interest in this space. And so I want to speak really personally here about story uh, and where I've been over the last two years as a fellow in this program. So as fellows may remember, a, a year ago I was really deep in fire working with FIRE in the American West, and I was going through a series of interviews that we'd done with my research team with people who'd experienced firsthand wildfire, right? So we were hearing a lot of stories about, um, you know, fire tearing through communities and sparing things like plastic toys and burning others. And um, I remember a, a, a community that had two churches that had been sort of competing, coming together, right, around flame and fire. And we were listening carefully to these stories, and with the purpose of it was to, th to really examine these stories and what was coming out of them, to think about how, what the stories were saying, and how to merge this what was with what was coming out of wildland fire science, to see if, like, are there better ways that we can manage fire in this space? Are there better ways that we can live with increasing fire, and more generally, with increasing disturbance? So those were our questions. On a more personal note, um, I, this is like my own personal experiment, wanted to think about fire for myself. Right? You hear about all these stories and you realize like, oh wait, do I know how I feel about fire? What's my fire story? And so I started, um, you know, knowing from fire scientists in the places that I was living, our return intervals for large scale fires was beyond my lifetime. And thinking about climate change and climate change disturbance, this is often the case, right? We have to think beyond ourselves. In, through the Pleistocene, before the Pleistocene, right? How, what are our tools to be able to do that? And so I wanted to look into my family story, my mom's story, my grandparents' stories, and, and so on both sides of my families, I sort of tracked these stories uh, by fire. And it, it may, it, when Rebecca Solnit spoke the other night and talked about this great metaphor about just following 
this, all you have to do is follow the headlights, like as far as you can see by the headlights, and you'll find your way home, right, when you're, when you're steering in the dark. And it felt so familiar to me that I just sort of leaped story uh, by story through my family, starting with a story I'd heard from my aunt about um, the cuarta, uh, my grandfather pulling a, a man out of burning flames in the cuartos, these little houses where they were living uh, behind their house about six miles north of the Rio Grande River in McAllen, Texas. And um, then back to my grandfather uh, and his stories about the Mexican Revolution, right? And so a, a lot of these stories I didn't, I didn't know because I didn't know to ask, right? These aren't the familiar family stories because they aren't, you, like you don't have the, fire gives you the questions to ask in a way that I didn't have the language for. And so uh, last, oh, probably July, I was feeling very good about this and I'd wrapped up this um, chapter in a, in a tight little boat, but as stories that aren't finished do. It just was, I was agitated. It wasn't done. It wasn't done. And there was kind of a uh, loose end that, and I remembered the story myself. You know, like, I'm in the kitchen. I'm in high school. I'm in the kitchen. Mom slams the receiver down on the phone when phones were still on walls, right? And says, uh, the lawyers made out like bandits. Nobody else got anything, you know? Um, and I knew it was about a leak, a spill under, uh, like from a, a leaky underground storage tank in the gas station down the road from my grandma's house. Um, and so last summer, I was in my office and I started looking into this. And, and you know, it was not just a leaky underground storage tank. It was um, much more colossal. So um, four feet of free-phase hydrocarbons floating on 30 acres of groundwater, 30 feet underground is, uh, is what I found. Um, so if the plume were above ground, it would have been a lake flood flooding 180 homes, like an elementary school, like a whole community. Um, and I found that they're still cleaning up, cleaning this up now. So this is in the 90s that uh, that's originally had happened. And so this was ongoing. Um, and I found a news uh, clip, dug it up on the internet, in which uh, one of the neighbors, Gracie Ozuna, um, who apparently was the first to believe that the chemical abajo, la tierra, the, the um, chemicals under the ground, caused her daughter's death of leukemia, um, and then that there was another childhood leukemia death and someone else who died of cancer in that same neighborhood. And these are kind of, uh, they're on 24th Street. This was on 21st and 20, 22nd Street. So, um, I'm, I, you know, I wrote some thoughts down and, um, and just thinking about, maybe it sounds easier finding the headlights, right? It, it, find, it sounds easier than it is steering um, the headlights home, and I'm thinking about what Terry often tells her students about writing uh, to what threatens to kill you. In my family, right before COVID, my aunt had died of leukemia, and two years before that, I had an uncle who died of a different kind of leukemia. So suddenly, in my office last July, I was reconfiguring this whole story in my mind. What are the links? How do we find these links, right? Um, and again, I don't think I was yet home, right? In a way, I think I've been pausing and, and I'm back now in this moment reconsidering, well, what does this mean? And in story, how do you know um, when you're home? So if I'm thinking now, and as I was thinking last night, that home was maybe not just my aunt's blood or my uncle's bone and the way that I rethought those home was when the port into my Aunt Mary's arm became the groundwater well that was also measuring the earth, right? Probing and measuring. And home was when I realized 
I was fundamentally wrong in the questions that I'd been asking about climate change and about fire. I thought that understanding our own stories would help us do what stories do best, allow us to connect to the emotion that encourage us to, us to change, but now I realize that fire's the one that's telling the story to us, through us, and so is the water and air. And these systems, our Earth systems, the hydrosphere, the geosphere, and their processes and functions, our stories don't just tell them, they tell us. So I'm going to take a leap here and say in my other life in New Hampshire, I'm teaching a first level uh, introductory course called Environmental Awareness and Modern Conservation Issues. And this is a title for a course that you know, maybe you can tell is about 20, 25 years old, I think. And we are not in that place anymore. We're not talking about wolves and, and we're not talking about you know, just sea otters. We're talking about entire earth systems in flux. That's what I think environmental awareness means, right? And I think it's critical that my students and we are aware of these earth systems, the hydrosphere, the geosphere, atmosphere, cryosphere, personal favorite. Um, and that, you know, through, like in any good relationships, that we invest in really understanding how these systems work for our sake and for ours, right? For example, I think it's really important that we understand the difference between stratospheric ozone which will save us, and tropospheric ozone that is killing us actively right now. Um, and I think it's important to tend to these spaces, right? And scientific spaces with all of their problems and all of the, um, which I'm well aware, right? The equity issues in science, the racism issue, issues in science. And right, this isn't just for rational, logical reasons, right? So we can save our planet and save ourselves. I mean, my own take on these systems is how, I mean, I stay up at night, 1.32 in the morning. I think they're beautiful. They're beautiful systems, right? I could weep thinking about thermohaline currents, right? How Arctic sea ice and the salt differentials, right, are powering our whole oceanic conveyor belt, right? They're impacting the weather outside right now. But I think this is beautiful. And I think understanding it is, um, I don't want to use the word investment, is worth the relationship, right? It's worth the engagement because it helps us know who we are and where we are. And so I want to sum up and say perhaps what I've realized most this year at RPL is that this may be religious. I never thought of this before, right? <laughs> that this deep love for how my deep love for how the world works, earth, fire, water, snow, um, that may be religious. And also, this realization for me that one of the great reciprocities between Earth and humanity is story, right? The stories we tell about the Earth and the story it tells us back. And this last year at RPL, I think my best work over the last year in this time of climate change was tending better to my listening. And I will say that I know sin has a lot to say about story. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Teresa, and thank you as well to the HDS students for organizing. And I just mentioned my clans, my mom's clan, my dad's clan, my maternal grandfather's clan, my paternal grandfather's clan, and how that makes me a Dene woman. 
and through my clan, I feel like is my way of storytelling is acknowledging my ancestral roots through my identity, knowing who I am and where I come from. And um, basically, a lot of our teachings is from our home, which our home is around Hogan, uh, made up of juniper wood. And it's a circular structure. And uh, we peel off the bark off the cedar wood or the juniper wood, and then we fill it in as insulation between the logs, and then we pack mud in a round structure, um, which is our home, and in the center is the fire, and the fire is who is our teacher, um, and who is our teacher that uh, reminds us of who we are, and it, it's the fire being is who uh, we pray to, and when I say pray, uh, in our language, prayer means tzodizin, which tzo literally means our tongue, and dilzin means like upholding that reverence. So in translating that, it really means the words that we speak out of our mouth is not owned by us, it's owned by our inner um, air people. And when, it, when we spit it out of our tongue, uh, the mist travels a long journey so that um, it's heard by all uh, other than, more than human beings. And that's how our voice is so powerful and that's how we acknowledge um, who we are as the net people. And a lot of my teachings are based on uh, me being a, from the Navajo Nation and me knowing my uh, creation stories and knowing my upbringing and how prayer in our language is maintaining our re relationship to the mountain people, to the water people, and the animal people, the plant people, uh, because without them, then we don't have a home, we don't have a, the fire at the center. So a lot of my work was based on listening, listening to the voices of our community, our elders, our knowledge holders, and our medicine people, and by listening, we were able to create a proposal to designate Bears Ears National Monument um, with the buildup of uh, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, five sovereign tribal governments who used their sovereignty status to advocate with the Department of Interior in Washington, D.C. And with that, we were able to have our knowledge uh, represented in the proclamation in addition to uh, the scientific knowledge. But what's really missing is actually acknowledging our direct relationship to the land. Um, and it's always a challenge dealing with the legal and policy terms. Uh, and for many generations, I realized that our voices have always been misrepresented um, because of the English language, even when we talk about religion, um, I don't view my way of life teaching as a religion because it's our stories that have been passed down for many, um, since time immemorial. It, our language was not gifted to us by humans, it was gifted to us by the air people. It's something that a lot of our teaching, our songs, and our prayers are not from humans. They're from these other beings that made up who we are and how we know our responsibility as the net people to take care of them. So 
these stories came from my elders uh, by listening, and that's how uh, we were able to have a voice um, within the National Monument uh, Proclamation. But there's so much to be done because of the English language. I know like the American Indian Religion Freedom Act is there, but still, when I hear my community voices, there's still a challenge in access to land. There's still a hesitancy and like a scare tactic just to having to feel like we have to hide just to harvest medicine, just to harvest juniper logs to build our homes. Um, so there's still a lot of challenge in how I see our voices missing uh, in those spaces. So I feel that that's important in sharing our stories and who we are um, and through the language and uh, as a way to um, open that door for our knowledge holders to maintain those relationship to the land. Um, and also even land interpreted in the Neh language is Kaya, which Kaya means uh, your feet and the souls under, uh, the souls under your feet um, and its relationship to the earth's surface, there's that direct kinship. Uh, Ke means your feet and ya means kind of like the uh, under the soles of your feet and that direct relationship to the earth's surface. So it's more descriptive, um, but in English, land is more general and it misses the key component of that relationality as it does in our interpretation for prayer. Um, so with that, uh, I'll hand it over to Naomi. <laughs> Wow. Oh, um, good morning, y'all. Um, I want to ditto the expressions of gratitude um, that my comrades, my friends have already given. You know, I've been sitting here thinking about the through line of genealogy as critical to our understanding of ourselves and our communities but also our understanding of land um, and non-human aspects of creation. And as a person who works in government, I understand that there's a complete lack of kind of genealogical inquiry in government spaces, right? I live in Philadelphia, we're electing a new mayor soon. And what will happen is that new mayor will be inaugurated in January, and we will pretend like the clock starts over with this new mayor. We won't connect those present realities to their ancestry. We won't think about how 20 years ago um, begat today, right? And I think this refusal uh, to do this kind of ancestral work at the level of institution, at the level of government, um, is a critical reason why we can't have sophisticated and I just think beautifully complicated conversations as modeled by my friends about 
planet, about climate change. Um, so I'm just thinking about how to, what is, what is genealogical work look like for governments? Um, what does it mean to, before we say anything, call the role of the ancestors that produced us, that produced this policy uh, that's on the table? I don't know, I just, I'm struck by um, that as critical work. Um, that, that also, I think, um, can be accessed through a kind of religious literacy. Um, here's what I mean. If governments understood the extent to which religious communities are invested in this notion of storytelling, of origin stories, of revisiting the same stories, liturgical year after liturgical year after liturgical year, right? That puts religious communities in a, in a certain kind of disposition um, of always remembering, always remembering, always remembering. I just wonder what kind of government could we be if we weren't afraid of memory. Um, I'm thinking about one of my favorite poets. Is it National Poetry Month? Is, is it still, is that a thing? Um, Lucille Clifton is like one of my favorite poets. And she wrote a poem called, Why People Be Mad At Me Sometimes. That's the name of the poem. And the poem says, People keep asking me to remember their memories, but I keep on remembering mine. Why people be mad at me sometimes, right? And so, you know, I think that, what if the disconnects that are present between government institutions and communities that are in relationship with each other and to the creation What if the disconnect is really about our mm, lack of respect for memory, for ancestry, for genealogical work? So that's just one thought that's on my mind as a result of what my colleagues said. I also think that what religious literacy, a kind of rigor around religious literacy brings to government is access to um, the language of mystery, the language of transcendence. I mean, Teresa, you started us off with, like, I was floating with you. I was there, right? This, this appeal to transcendence, to something bigger than, that humbles us, um, the ineffable, right? But so much of government, is about precision of language and, and reducing it to the, you know, the granular and not just sitting with the mystery, sitting with the ambiguity, sitting with the transcendence, sitting with what we can only imagine, right? I was saying to somebody yesterday at the fellows meeting that, um, you know, I feel like 
I feel like a unicorn working in, in government because I'm always appealing to the transcendent, the imaginary, the mystery, uh, the mysterious, right? And what if government saw its task as um, becoming more familiar with the transcendent and the imaginary? Um, and the last thing I'll say is, this has me thinking about, um, we've been talking about language and um, the fluencies that government does not have as it pertains to working in communities with communities, particularly around climate justice. And so I wonder if what religious literacy does, the principles, right, of religious literacy um, demand that government cultivate more fluencies, fluency in integration and not disintegration, right? Government is nothing if not completely disintegrated, siloed, compartmentalized, right? This agency doesn't talk to that agency. Uh, this person doesn't talk to the person on the other side of the cubicle wall, right? But what we're describing here, following the lead of indigenous, our indigenous siblings, is the need to become fluent in integration, fluent in um, knowledges that are fully embodied, unapologetic about that their embodiment, that the, the body is not a barrier to good governance, but the body is critical to good governance. Um, and I think what we have instead, at least in Philly, I don't know how it is in your neck of the woods, is a government that is hostile to bodies. Hostile um, to, I think, um, interiority in a way that makes it impossible for us to have a climate justice conversation that takes seriously um, these ways of being and doing in the world. So those are just some things that are on my mind as I think about the need for religious literacy frameworks and competencies in government spaces. Thank you, all three of you. Um, each of you spoke with such thoughtfulness and such beauty and such eloquence. It's really been interesting to listen to the three of you speak right now. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, Susie mentioned time, which feels very appropriate because, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been in, um, many of the sessions this week, in part because my time has been stretched in other directions, including having all our fellows here. So I do not speak as I wish I could from the experience of having accompanied um, you all in what has been taking place over the course of the week. 
but I am struck by um, a dissonance or a difference between the tenor and the content of what I have heard just now and so much of the ways in which I hear climate crisis spoken about out in the world and in the media and in the press. And um, this is, uh, I say this as an observation more than anything else, first of all, which is that when I hear the word climate crisis follows, that fo is followed by how do we solve it? It's followed by how do we guarantee continual perdurance or endurance? It's followed by there's a problem that we need to fix. It's followed by there are these giant systems in the world that we have created that need to be changed. Um, I just want to note that what I've just heard here is so very different, right? What I've heard here is that this crisis, we need to think about this crisis as a crisis in either how we are living now or a crisis because it's making impossible how some people are living to be able to live in that way. It's a crisis of a recognition that we are in a moment in which many, many people are finding that the ways in which we are living are not meaningful as they should be, that we are deracinated, we are uprooted, we are not in relation, we're not telling the right stories, we're not entering into the right relationships. And I'm struck listening to Teresa by how much of our language, how much of the metaphors that govern our lives do come from science. That if we think about the language we use to understand ourselves, we're often using language from contemporary or just slightly dated science. So now we talk about thinking the way we've learned to talk about computers how are you, and feeling. How are you processing that? Do you have all the information you need? And I think about the way in which Teresa was talking about these layers of the atmosphere and talking about, and has spoken before to me, about layers of the earth under our feet and thinks about the nature of ice and water. And that the scientific world opens up the possibility of incredibly rich metaphor. We see this with thinkers like the physicist Carlo Rovelli, or if you listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson speak, that there are ways in which science, which we often characterize as author of the systems that are alienating us from humanity is rich with metaphor that can bring us back into or open up new kinds of relationality with the non-human world and in the human world. And I wonder, as we listen also to Sin talk about the structures of relations that are the indigenous 
modes of knowing in her community that are enacted and that are known through their enactment, through their stories and through their ceremonies, and the way in which in conversation before this day today when I've spoken with Sin and asked about how her community thinks about climate crisis, talks about climate crisis, she said to me, we don't really talk about climate crisis. We talk about what ceremonies are called for. And we talk about what is inhibiting or prohibiting ceremonies that we need, whether because of questions of land access or questions of continuity of culture that are disrupted. And I listened to Naomi talk about what memory is and the complexity of the possibility of engaging the true complexity of memory within a genuinely diverse culture and a genuinely diverse community. And I wonder, listening to the three of you, as you've been thinking about these issues and talking about them amongst yourselves and with others over the course of the year, how you imagine a different kind of relation between these three bodies of knowledge and practice, the governmental, the scientific, and the native or indigenous. How do you begin to bring what you're thinking about in terms of relationality and storytelling and the encounter with diversity that our world necessitates? It's just, it's part of what we are living. How do you think about actually opening those in action to each other in different ways that respect and transform the integrity of different modes of knowing as they come into contact with each other. And I'd say because Teresa, you started first. <laughs> it's a real question, yeah. I wonder how, where the three of you are on this. And I know you've been thinking about some of this with the relationship between scientists and scientists moving into and out of and working along with different communities, including um, indigenous communities in this country. Yeah, I'm gonna give you, since I'm on the spot, the first thing that comes to mind, um, some of you will know, especially students who are here, that I have a, this love of maps. Um, and I think of them about this sort of symbolic level of story. And if you can shift a map, you can shift everything, right? And when we think about even a Beersers map or a landscape map, the way you draw those boundaries, and the whoever, who draws those lines, who gets to make the decisions about how the lines are drawn, all of those, um, all those are, are, are really interesting to me and powerful in a governance space. So, and I have, I should say, a PhD student right now who's working with Nez Perce lands. And I mean, it, it sounds so um, mundane, right? But she's working with Nez Perce lands to figure out how in forest service, forest management planning documents, we can draw better maps that better reflect indigenous perceptions of space. How do we show something on a map that's treaty rights that's, that are, have existed, that represent relationships from time immemorial on a map in a document 
that sits on a million shelves or computers, or, but is a an incredibly important document for, if you're in the Western United States, the majority of lands within some of these Western states by a long shot, right? So these government spaces can be incredibly important and integrated, as you were thinking about, these are so interesting to me to think about. I'm not sure I've ever thought about genealogy in something like a forest service planning document, but like, what does that look like? And what is the shape of time in some of these documents? And how can we, and speaking from the scientific space, what does it look like when you can accommodate a textured and nuanced time rather than a more specific and linear time? Um, so that's a circuitous way of saying, I'm thinking about maps. And where are, where, where is science in maps? Where are indigenous spaces in maps? What's the role of governance in maps? And how can they be used? As we're like really thinking about fundamental shifts in epistemologies, right? How can they become a tool in helping us reshape? You know, and Rebecca Solnit, not, not looking for things we don't have, but reshaping the things that are present and here. And how can we engage with them differently? Uh, I think for me, what came to mind was the question of who holds power when we're thinking about climate. And oftentimes, you know, people don't understand that climate holds the power and that as humans, we're only secondary occupying the space temporarily for a short period of time. Um, and we don't have power for an earthquake or we don't have a power for a thunderstorm, and those are response to our actions of us occupying this space. And even when I think about power um, in government structure, even within tribal governments, there's still a lot of changes that has to happen. Um, and the way the system is structured, uh, the tribal governments in consultation with the DC government. They call that consultation, but there's a disconnection with the voices of the communities, of our knowledge holders, medicine people, those who hold the practical lived experiences of uh, maintaining those connections with those that hold the higher power um, who are more than human. And so there's no consultation with the community level, so that's a gap in the way communication flows. And our tribal government mimics the government structure of the Washington DC office. So it's still like a colonial process, and they say we're sovereign, but we're still under federal reserve land by the federal government. So that's not sovereign to me. Um, so politically, there's still a lot of work within itself and a reason why um, we haven't seen much things happen for those of us that are still living and teaching um, this knowledge. So I think those are big challenges and um, yeah, we'll, I'm looking at <laughs> looking for answers. <laughs> I'll hand it over to Nate. All I need is one mic. Okay, no. Um, 
You know, I really appreciate this discussion of time and um, marking time. I think that government is invested in um, it's almost like time that isn't, hasn't been created yet. That's, I mean, we're talking constantly about projections and, and forecasts and what, to the exclusion of, right, people's lived reality. Like at one o'clock today, am I going to be able to eat, you know? At 6 p.m. today, am I gonna be able to help my kid with their homework, right? And, and so government has something to learn about keeping time um, in ways that are not so future focused that we um, dismiss the importance of now. We had a conversation I think it was kind of a tangent. We were talking about hope and the, and the kind of architectures of hope, the language of hope that is so future-facing. Um, even notions of safety and security, like we're talking about public safety in Philly all the time. And it's like this future focus, right? We don't think about what it means to be secure right now not at some future moment. And so I think that, that um, there are possibilities for government to relate to time differently so that we um, we don't sacrifice the present uh, in service to a future that is not even imaginable. You know, I, I don't know. I think, we, I think we in government sacrifice a lot in the name of um, the future. And uh, I think we do a lot of harm to bodies today, to planet today as a result. And so, I would just love to think about, similarly, Teresa, when you're talking about maps as key, I wonder about clocks or, or some, some sort of way to figuratively talk about time in City Hall that honors these ways of knowing and understanding time, of understanding space, uh, so that's what's on my mind. And again, it's very woo-woo. Like I, you know, I can't go to a meeting and be talking about, you know, the architectures of time. Like they won't, they won't get that. So how do we, <laughs> so there's a lot to do, I think, in even reimagining what governance even is, what we're even here to do as government professionals. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I think it is now time to open to questions and comments from 
the room and open up the conversation a little bit wider. Um, thank you all so much. My name is Anna, and I've been part of the team that helped to put this week together, and just, oof, I'm soaking in so much of your wisdom. Thank you. And um, just to pick up on that last line of, like, it's woo-woo, or, like, I think something I struggle with in more secular spaces or government spaces is how to bridge, like, how to bring these conversations or, like, the richness of this week to folks that might not have that language. So if you have any advice on how you're doing that, um, I would love to hear it. I think that I have had some creative latitude because the city at least saw it important to invest in an office of faith-based and interfaith affairs to which I could be appointed, <laughs> right? Um, was at least taking seriously the transactional uh, possibilities for relationships with religious communities and put somebody in place to engage in those transactions. And I kind of choose to embody the world in a way that is not transactional, but that seeks to bring some of this woo-woo-ness uh, into government. And what has happened is, um, it's, it started with COVID, emergency response. It started with me saying, hi, Mr. Health Commissioner. It was Mr. at the time, it's now Ms. Health Commissioner. Uh, I know you're giving these COVID updates to people every day and you're reading the numbers of people who died and that feels really important uh, and what the hell are you doing? You can't just get on TV and read the, the death toll and then say, good luck, wear your masks. Like that's not, that doesn't take seriously bodies. It doesn't take seriously um, the ways of knowing and ways of being that are thoroughly embodied, right? You need to have somebody come before the people and say, you know, something to their hearts, something to their anxious minds. You need to have somebody care about the loss. We have to hear about this loss daily, right? Uh, so it started with me sort of challenging the way we were being and doing government in the midst of a global pandemic. How can you just be concerned about, um, you know, communicating the science of how a virus is transmitted? Like, that's really important. And people are, like, losing it. <laughs> and, and you need to be able to lead in a way that takes seriously that reality. Um, and that turned into my being able to build trust and respect with my city colleagues who now call me to bring the woo-woo to that meeting or this policy conversation, right? But it took um, my saying to them with this, I guess, opportunity of the crisis of COVID, we, we have to think about governance differently. Um, so I think government's having the presence of mind to at least care about relationship with religious communities, people of faith, and then nurture a spirit of care as a first response, right? Care as a driver of policy making. 
Um, so I'm abundantly grateful that I, I live in a city, I work in a city that, that invested in that way. I don't know if others have ideas too. I can maybe speak to that in a little bit of a different way. And I wanna acknowledge uh, RPL here too and the work of this space. If, you know, you're saying you can't show up in government meetings and speak like this. Do I speak like this in my college? You know, no way. You know, this is, this is a space in which um, it's a space of integration that Diane's vision and others have created. And so I think all of the fellows have really benefited, right, from thinking about how does this belong in the law school, right? How do we take this to government? What does it look like? And also um, supporting us in these wild integrations. You know, like I, um, I took Donna Haraway last semester to my uh, PhD natural resource students. So these are students who are studying permafrost. And, uh, and I'm asking them to think about Philosophers are bad-mouthing science. What do you, how do you feel about this? You know, what is it, how does this sit with you? You know, and um, and that's been a really refreshing space. I had a total teaching failure um, three weeks ago when I I tried to talk about with my undergrads the shape of a story in the middle of this. You know, um, I think we were in atmosphere. Didn't 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 work, right? But still, it's like having the daring to try and do this kind of integration uh, in these spaces where things don't fit. Right? And I do think that over the past two years, having this support to know that there are other folks out there doing this crazy stuff too, and a space to talk about it every couple of weeks to check in and say, I had this utter failure has been really uh, uh, support. So one of my answers would be, I think it's being modeled here. You know, this is a space and a way in which, uh, in which this is happening. Yeah, and, and I think in another way too, speaking to, to having visited Sin, in her world, academic spaces are, are um, an illusion in some ways. When you're in your community on the ground, the world doesn't divide up like this. People are integrated people outside of this strangeness, where I can say, like, can you walk over to chemistry, and you could actually get up and do that thing. Whereas if you're in Bears Ears, and I say walk to chemistry, it's irrelevant, right? So I think it's not just, our problem isn't just integrating the academy it's making the academy relevant to the rest of the world in ways that make sense. We have time for one more question. Uh, thanks to all of you and to or the organizers. Um, I come from a climate policy background. I've worked in government for about 15 years, and I have tried to start having these conversations and, and crack the door open on the burnout that I'm seeing among colleagues, clients, peers, uh, sort of working in this space to say, I think this is a lot of unprocessed grief from treating these reports and these numbers like the body counts in COVID of like what we're actually dealing with versus how we engage with it. And I, I see like a dawning recognition in people's eyes and then sort of like a deer in the headlights of like, oh God, I can't actually do that because it will destroy me. And so wondering if you, any of you have comments on sort of religious frameworks that we could try to re-imbue into our communities that have lost ritual and community spaces and sort of provide people pathways for how to actually have this conversation. Thank you so much for that question, I love it. Um, In Philly, we have uh, partnered with a community-based organization 
that um, is sort of staffed with volunteer grief doulas. And I bring them to City Hall and let them do their thing. We have grief parades. You know, imagine folk coming out of their houses in West Philly to walk the streets with other folks who are grieving. And we engage in ritual around that grief, around naming it, around sharing it so that the weight is not so heavy. Um, and again, when I first brought this to my manager when I was first hired, <laughs> she was like, what not, what? Um, how is this part of your job, you know, what? Deer in headlights, you know. But to have my colleagues, the budget people and the, you know, the procurement office people and the, let themselves fall apart. Uh, has been a gift both to me and to them, I think. Um, to have our mayor, who is kind of the definition of like surly, like he doesn't <laughs> cry, what? You know, he doesn't. But to have him choke up now in meetings, we're just like, is he, is he, you know, talking about the spring weather. I sit on the teams and I say, yes, my work here is done, right? The, the, so um, I guess that's a, a long way for me to say there are communities that want to hold the grief, want to create space for, and that, again, that's about remembering what we used to do. Like for me, I come out of a black Christian tradition where there was a mourner's bench. Like people who were like, we will greet, we will hold the grief. Bring us your, come to me, all you who are heavy, right? Rest here. We needed that. We knew we needed that. We needed people to help us manage the fires. I want you to know, I'm going to preach that. I just want you to know those questions that you asked. So... Um, knowing that communities already have this in place. Communities have known that they need somebody in the community to help with the grief. Somebody in the, you know, that woman in the community that everybody knows they can go to when they, right? Communities know. But somehow in government we think, oh, that's not necessary. So, I, I'm rambling now, but I think it can be done. I think it can be done. I wonder also um, about 
the very structure of you're describing grieving or you're describing this held grief that maybe is not being grieving, that where grieving isn't happening in response to people who are sitting with the data and sitting with the numbers. And I think back to what you were saying about COVID. I also think back to what so many people and so many children across this country experienced during COVID, where learning was turned further and further into data delivered to bodies locked in rooms. And it just, it just makes me think about the call to be in daily relation to the land in the present and uh, the very simple reality that meaning is something that is experienced in the present and meaninglessness is something that is experienced in the present. And it's not to say we shouldn't plan for the future, but that that alienation is something that is held in a body in the present moment. And it really raises a question of how we are living in the present. And I hear Naomi talking about the importance of people gathering together in grief, to grieve, but it also raises the question of really, like we talk about land acknowledgement, but what is each person or each community, as small or large as they may be, daily in and out actual relationship with the non-human living and non-human earthly and non-human atmospheric world around them? And what are the practices that can come into being for different people in different communities that actually put them into or open in them or open them relationally to the growing world that is being lamented or not grieved or the fears around it and the recognition that those fears are one thing but one thing they may also call for is a very different, as all three of these women have been talking about, I think a very different um, actual lived present. The conversation will continue, but we're gonna take a pause for now. Let's take a moment to thank our wonderful. Sponsor, Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.